prostitute. Mm. Get up, that mm. fool Indians in our field again, drunk as a coot. Let me turn this down really quick. That is the Yanusa dance. That is getting me fired up. I thought it was the the Diet Mountain Dew that I that I've been drinking, but I think it's uh, I think it's the song. <laughs> uh, Legabashi. This is Turtle Boy uh, coming from the Sweat Lodge Fitness Center here in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And what you're hearing there is uh, the Yanusa dance led by Ness J Gray. It comes off an album um, called Songs of the Muscogee Creek, and it was on the old Indian House label. And this is one of the very first records that I remember as a kid uh, living in in East Tulsa over on 5th Street. And I uh, remember putting this record on and and dancing around the living room and just being moved by the shakers and the hand drums and just the, the song itself. Uh, you know, probably having no idea what I was doing. I don't think I'd been to a stomp dance at that point in my life. So uh, most likely I was just imitating, you know, Chief J Strongbow or, or something I was watching on TV at the time. But uh, like I said, I just remember, you know, uh, really being moved and uh, just imagining, you know, looking at the pictures on the album sleeve and just imagining uh, what, what it was like to uh, hear that song and, and what those people were doing, you know, just by the sounds of it, imagining it in my mind. And, uh, you know, all those years later, when I, I got to go to a stomp dance, it was uh, one of the most powerful experiences um, of my life, that first stomp dance that you get to go to. So, uh, yeah, that's uh, the Anusa dance. And I picked that song because... Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, a Yanessa uh, or a buffalo uh, of a man here by the name of Will Sonny Sampson. Uh, Legabashi, uh, Mahe, welcome to part one of a possible uh, three-part episode about the 1979 TV movie called Fishhawk. And uh, I say part one because, honestly, there's just a lot to cover with this one. And the outpouring of love and support for Will Sampson has been, quite frankly, overwhelming. But, uh, you know, in, in a good way. Uh, when, I, when I set out 
to do this episode. Um, you know, when I was looking through the catalog of, of Samson films, and um, I kind of settled on this one, um, I knew I had to kind of to tread lightly. And what I mean by that is, you know, uh, being Muskogee Creek myself, and Samson being Muskogee Creek, and being from Oklahoma, uh, Sonny, uh, as he was known by his family and friends, he's he's a legend around here and it, it's kind of hard to go anywhere near the Mogi area uh, without bumping into somebody who doesn't have a story or a story about a story about the man uh, some of them are similar and some of them are told from different points of view or some have you know definitely been elaborated on like that old game of telephone uh, where it's kind of been passed on down the line um but like I said, there's just so much uh, oral stories out there about him. And, you know, I want to make sure that I'm treating the man uh, and I'm treating the subject matter with the utmost respect and honor because uh, that's what he deserves. I mean, he's one of the very first Native American actors that I can think of that really, you know, flip the script on uh, what Native representation in film should look like. So I first surfed the internet because I was kind of looking for a basic biography of the man. And, and of course, like the very first hit that you always get when looking up something like that is going to be Wikipedia. Um, which, you know, it's not always reliable. It's just like anything else you read on the internet. It's, you know, you can't believe everything. But when I was kind of going through his Wikipedia entry, uh, I was shocked to find that it was su surprisingly weak. There's like uh, five paragraphs probably, and two of those were about his wives and, and his children uh, that, he, that he had. So I just knew that there had to be more out there, and guess what? There's not. I mean, other than a few magazine articles, and you know, there's a write-up about his art, um, there's an interview on YouTube, but that's really about it. I kind of struck out. Uh, there's not anything about uh, his history, his story, his legacy. I mean, uh, there's like a huge gap, time gap um, in his life where there's just, there's no information out there about that. Uh, so that, that was kind of what I was trying to, to dig in and, and find out more about, especially like, um, you know, how did he get into acting? I mean, he didn't even land his first acting role until he was 43 years old. I mean, how does that happen? Uh, so after striking out on the internet, um, I went to, uh, Facebook and I'm a member of a few Muskogee Facebook groups and I just posed a simple question. I asked, um, does anybody have any good stories about Will Sampson? And that was like dynamite. That was like chum in the water. I couldn't believe the response I got. I mean, for the next four days, my messenger just exploded with responses. I mean, I could not believe um, how many people around here um, claimed to know the man, actually knew the man, had a story about the man had had a story that was passed down about the man. Uh, it was just overwhelming. And I, like I said, I, I just, I was shocked. Uh, I began hearing from family members. Um, I, I heard from his, I heard from cousins. I heard from his children. Uh, I began hearing from, you know, a few people on the inside, uh, you know, uh, uh, the movie industry. 
uh, like I said, I was just su- really surprised at the outpouring of love and respect that um, and admiration that people continue to have for him. So, uh, like I said, I, I, I'm still working on, you know, full disclosure, putting all of these stories together. And I'm having to sift through a lot because, you know, I kind of have to, to wade through what I believe is fact and what I believe is fiction and, and what I believe is an exaggeration uh, or elaborated story. And uh, I want to just do the man uh, right um, by his family and, and, you know, just because I, he deserves that. Um, he's one of the very first of Native American actors that, you know, stood up against, uh, you know, betrayal, you know, Native betrayals. Uh, in film and uh, I just you know like I said he deserves all the respect in the world so I don't want to put out any you know uh, false falsehoods out there or anything like that and um, I'm hoping I mean my, my plan right now is to you know go through all of those stories and and uh, put together a much more comprehensive episode about him uh, in a few weeks Um but in the meantime, there, there's a there's a ton of info to go over with Fishhawk, you know, without all the Will Sampson stories, um, the biography and history. Uh, and I know already that my, my episodes are kind of lengthy to begin with. And sitting down and pledging three plus hours of your life is a huge commitment, uh, especially to a podcast. But it's, if you have, I, I sincerely appreciate uh, if, you've, if you've sat down and, and gone through and listened to, to one. Um, because I'm taking note of all the feedback that I've been getting concerning that. And I want you all to know I'm, I'm listening and I'm hearing what you guys are saying. Um, and like I said, uh, I, I put all that information in there uh, because I think it's important. I find those kinds of things fascinating. And I think it helps shed a little bit better light on the subject matter of Native representation in film. I believe it also provides a little bit more context to the films that we're discussing. And I just feel that it's important because there's a lot of these things that the, you know, the general audience may not even know about. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to start this was to kind of help educate. And uh, so I feel like all of that stuff is important. But that being said, um, I think it might be easier on everybody, including myself, if I start breaking down each episode into two parts, uh, the first part will be kind of covering all the historical, uh, you know, aspects and the tropes and negative stereotypes of native depictions in cinema. And then the other one will be focused more on the film review, uh, not to even go off on the fact that I actually read a novel. There, this movie was based on a novel and I read the novel uh, called Old, Old Fishhawk. And I think that's important, too, because there's so much that was left out that the film really needed. And I want to kind of go over that, too. So uh, between my, you know, raising two babies, I got a a, a four-month-old and I got a 14-month-old. And I teach school in the middle of a pandemic and, uh, you know, reading a novel and trying to sift through all these Will Sampson stories and watching movies, you know, finding time to do this, this podcast is right now is, is pretty tricky, but I don't want to abandon it all together. Cause this is one of the most favorite things that I do, um, with my life. I, it's, it's something that I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoy, uh, doing. So even if it's just for like 50 people, it doesn't matter. Uh, I, I love doing this, even if, like I said, for you guys. 
So uh, if I do do the uh, episodes in two parts, I think, um, you know, if, if you're not into the historical aspect of the podcast, then just skip it. And you don't even have to listen to that. You can just go right for the film review. Or maybe you think that uh, pledging an hour and a half over a silly uh, slasher movie, uh, ghost dance is, is too much for you. You just like the historical parts, then you can, this, this episode's for you. Um, so I think this would be the perfect, um, episode and the opportunity to kind of play around with the format a little bit. Um, right now, uh, part one, I'm going to give you a brief synopsis, uh, and the stereotypes that are kind of depicted in this film. And then part two, will focus on the film itself And then part three probably will be the reason why I really wanted to do this podcast in the first place was to talk about my favorite native actor of all time, uh, Will Sonny Sampson. Uh, You know, so Mado to everyone who's who's taken time out to listen and offer suggestions and like us on Facebook and review us on iTunes. Um, You know, I I take all those suggestions because I want to improve this show. I mean, it's not my podcast. And I've said this from the beginning. I think that it's our podcast. And if we can all come together and make it better, then that's something I definitely want to do. So I'll tell you what, let's try it out with this one. We'll see what you think. And if you like this, let me know. If you hate it, let me know that too. I'm always open to feedback and constructive criticism. So there's a couple of ways you can get a hold of me. You can smoke me a message uh, on Facebook. Uh, we have a Facebook group, uh, Skoden Cinema. Uh, we also have a Facebook page under the same thing, Skoden Cinema. I'm on Instagram at, at Skoden uh, underscore cinema. And then, of course, you can always email me at scodencinema at gmail.com. And I look forward to hearing from you guys. Like I said, um, all of this is, is because of, of listener feedback. And uh, I really appreciate all, all of that. So with that being said, I'm going to uh, burn a little sweet grass here. We're going to get this good medicine going. And I'm going to kick off part one of Fishhawk 1979. Alright, Fishhawk 1979. Now, this is kind of a tricky movie to do because um, it was never uh, released theatrically, um, as far as I could tell. Um, It only was on television. So, the tagline that I have is from the DVD. Now, like I told you before... um, I'm a huge physical media guy. I, I, I love downloading movies, but man, I just I gotta see the the case. I want to look at the art. I want to read uh, all the chapters, titles. I mean, I'm just that's the way I am. So uh, this movie is available on YouTube for free. Um, I don't think that it's on available. Uh, I don't think it's available on Amazon or any other platform. The only way I saw it uh, out there was on um, YouTube. But I do have the DVD, and it is on VHS as well. So the tagline that I have is um, from the DVD, and it says here, Fish Hawk, an adventure uh, of the heart. But the tagline on the back here says, it's never too late to make a friend, dot, dot, dot. And I can tell you now that that's kind of um, a bit of a misrepresentation for this film. Uh, The movie really tries to hammer home the relationship between um, Fishhawk and the young boy Corby 
But in reality, it's it's really more about Fishhawk um, kind of grieving the loss of his only family member, uh, a dog. And that's also kind of what the book is about. But uh, despite their efforts, they, they're trying to hammer that on the, the cover of the DVD, um, which is not even Will Sampson or, or the child playing Corby. They're dressed more modern. Uh, there's stars on it. They're kind of walking through a forest. Uh, there's an eagle in there, of course. But... Uh, like I said, uh, it's kind of a misrepresentation of what this film really is. But uh, it came out in 1979, and it stars the man himself, Will Sonny Sampson, who was a full-blood Muskogee Creek. He plays the titular Fishhawk. And this is why we're here, eh? I mean, he is an artist. He's an actor. He's a legend. And he, he got, got his start at the age of 43, uh, co-starring in Milos Forman's One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest playing um, the deaf-mute Chief Bromden. Uh, after that, he went on to act for Robert Altman in Buffalo Bill and the Indians, and then he was uh, in my personal favorite role as Tin Bears in The Outlaw Josie Wales in 76. He played Crazy Horse in White Buffalo, and it's on that film where he famously halted production uh, for a week over the casting of white actors in native roles. So he was really kind of ahead of his time there. Uh, he was also in a movie called Orca. Um, it was kind of like a Jaws ripoff about a killer whale. Uh, he was in a TV movie called Relentless um, by Brian Garfield, the same writer who did Death Wish. And um, he also had a recurring role in the TV show Vegas. Uh, and then he was in Fishhawk in 79. And then probably his third most remembered role um, was the Medicine Man in Poltergeist 2 in 1986. And then after that, he kind of had a small part in the canon uh, Indiana Jones classic uh, or Indiana Jones ripoff uh, Firewalker. Um and then sadly, um, he kind of passed away at the age of 53 in 1987 from complications recovering from a heart-slash-lung transplant. And yeah, there are a lot more memorable films than this one. Um, I, mean, I, I could have done One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. I could have done uh, Outlaw Josie Wales. I could have done White Buffalo with Charles Bronson. But I picked Fishhawk because this was his very first starring uh, role and that's why I went with this one. So the other actors in here, uh, Don Franks, uh, no no tribal affiliation with him um, as Duke Boggs, which is we learn in the book is short for Deuteronomy um, because the the grandpa named all of his kids after books of the Bible. Uh, but he's uh, played by Dan, Don Franks. He's a man that had many many irons in the entertainment fire. Uh, he was a handsome Canadian actor. He was a vocalist. He was a jazz musician. Uh, and honestly, with confidence, um, you can add drummer, poet, motorcyclist, author, peace activist to his long list of accomplishments. Um, he grew up quite adept at athletics. He played soccer. He played lacrosse and rugby. He performed in vaudeville and it was in summer stock shows. Um, he relocated to Toronto and... Um, from the age of 11, he landed a really early job singing on the radio. And then in 1954, he moved over to the brand new medium called television. Uh, he was acting in both variety shows and dramas. He was also a TV writer. He penned several documentaries and public affairs specials in both Toronto and Montreal. 
uh, on the nightclub scene. He was featured as a jazz vocalist. He was a DJ. He was a trombonist in a country western band. And um, he was also a member of the barbershop quartet called Model T4. Uh, in the mid-60s, he focused more on small screen acting, um, racking up a number of rugged, adventurous, guest-starring turns on TV episodes like The Wild Wild West. He was in Mannix, The Man from Uncle. He was in Mission Impossible. Uh, a promising lead that he could have that could have led to stardom in the NBC series Jericho. But it was cut short when the show was bowled over by its ABC competition, Batman, uh, in 1966. And Jericho was quickly canceled after uh, one season. This guy was in so many films and shows. I mean, it really honestly could be a podcast all of its own. Um, I'll list a few of my favorites, though. Um, he uh, played uh, Mr. Anybody in the Mr. Rogers Neighborhood. Um, and get ready for this. Uh, I'm getting ready to blow your minds, um, especially with the uh, the popularity of this show. He was the original Boba Fett, eh? He was the first guy to portray Boba Fett. He voiced him in the animation sequence in the Star Wars Holiday Trainwreck, if you've ever seen that on bootleg. Uh, yeah, he, he, played, he voiced Boba Fett. He was also Chief Newbie in My Bloody Valentine. He was Dr. Freaking Claw in Inspector Gadget. He was in Garbage Pail Kids, the movie, Care Bear, Swamp Thing, Captain Planet. I mean, seriously, you would need to take a three-day weekend uh, just to go over this guy's filmography. It's, it's quite amazing, to be honest. Um, the next actor um, is the kid, uh, Charles Fields. Again, no tribal affiliation. He played Corby Boggs. There's not really much here on him. He was born in 71. He made, you know, uh, I guess he was about seven or eight years old in this movie. In the novel, the, the character Corby is like 11 or 12, which makes a lot more sense. But uh, here, um, he didn't really star a whole lot after this film. He did a couple of forgettable TV movies. He he did appear in a, a film called The Binnaker Gang. And his very last role was in a movie called The Manhattan Project in 1986. And he sort of dropped off the map after that. And I really couldn't find anything else about him. But I'm going to stop here with the cast because honestly, unless you really want to know you know, who played John Candy's wife in Summer Rental, there's not much here. Um, Samson is, is the only native actor in the entire cast. And since this is really a celebration of natives in film, I don't really see much use in going on uh, anymore. The uh, film was written by Blanche um, Hanelis, uh, again, no tribal affiliation. She's another TV teleplay writer who did a lot of work on Little House on the Prairie and My Favorite Marsh Martian. Uh, it is based on the novel Old Fishhawk, which I have read, and it was written by Mitchell F. Jane. Again, no tribal affiliation. But I will say this, uh, Mitchell F. Jane is best remembered as the upright bass player in that old blue, bluegrass band, the Dillards, um, who were uh, was on Andy Griffith's show. Um, the parents, they were on the, the dar they were billed as the, the Darling family, but they're actually a real band called the Dillards. But uh, they toured Southern California in the late 60s. And I'm, I'm a huge fan of, of Andy Griffith, uh, believe it or not. And that might surprise you. And it's on MeTV, which, you know, we don't have cable in our house. So we're kind of reduced to the mundaneness of network and local affiliates. But one of the ones that we do get um, is MeTV. And if you're not watching that, you're really missing out. I mean, they, they show some really good, keen stuff on there. 
There's a lot of westerns though, so it's kind of that you kind of have to get over that. But they uh, once you get past all uh, you know, have gun will travel and uh, the rifleman and all that. They have some good stuff on there. Uh, Brady Bunch is on there, and, and uh, Saved by the Bells on there. They they do uh, Three Stooges Hour. Uh, Happy Days is on there. Andy Griffiths on there. Flintstones is on there. And then every Saturday night, me and the little jabroni, uh, we sit down and watch Sven Gulli. And it's just, you know, good, comforting television programming. Uh, just kind of reminds me of some simpler times in my life. So check it out. Didn't mean to get off on a tangent there. Uh, but anyway, the, the film was directed by Donald Shabib, uh, or Shibib. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Again, no tribal affiliation. But I will say this. Uh, he's best known to me as the director of another Canadian-produced Disney movie called Running Brave about Native Olympian runner Billy Mills. And I talked about that in the opening episode as being one of the very first times I saw uh, a Native story being told. Um, I didn't even really touch on the fact that Robbie Benson, who played Billy Mills, is not Native. It was kind of one of those cases of, you know, uh, a white guy playing a Native. Uh, But anyway... Uh, I, that's either here or there, but I got a ton of stuff, uh, on this guy that you've never heard of. I've never heard of, but, uh, other than, uh, you know, running brave, he has proven that he has the chops to bring native stories to life, but does he have the chops to bring this story to life? Uh, that is the question. I, I think for the most part, he did a fairly good job with it. Uh, so next I'm going to read the box description. This one comes from the back of the DVD that I have. It says, uh, Osage Indian Fishhawk has seen his share of troubles having no family and by, uh, sorry, having no family and living by on odd jobs. Uh, Fishhawk is hired to hunt down a bear that's been killing livestock. Fishhawk temporarily moves in with a local family and befriends the young son, Corby. When Fishhawk saves Corby from a deadly encounter with a wild boar, their friendship grows deeper, and with Corby's help, Fishhawk begins a new life. With a screenplay by Blanche Hanalis from the Emmy award-winning series Little House on the Prairie, Fishhawk is an uplifting story the entire family will enjoy. Uh, I will say that that's right. Uh, that's fairly accurate. Um, as far as uh, it's an uplifting story the entire family will enjoy. Um, other than that, that's a lot of bunk, the rest of it. Uh, I get it. You're, you're trying to sell a movie. You're, you're trying to take uh, what you the, the material that you've got and you're trying to shape it into what you think it should be. But the fact is, is it's not really about Corby. Um, it's not even really about Corby saving Fishhawk from his alcoholism. Uh, it's about Fishhawk mourning the loss uh, of his dog and you know feeling absolutely alone and uh, disconnected with life uh, in his twilight years. He's wanting to return to his people. He has a really tough past. Uh, which causes his his drinking that, again, the, the movie kind of glosses over, but the, the book really delves into. Okay, so I'm going to read now the back of the book, and we can see the difference between what the movie focused on and what the book focused on. So it says, Alone, Fishhawk has no one but his dog, nothing but a whiskey bottle to soothe him into forgetful slumber. Born into the wilderness, the once-proud Osage Brave has become little more than a town character. 
Now in his old age, he wants to go back to the land he once roamed with his people away from white man civilization. But before he goes, he has to prove his worth one more time by avenging a death. He must track and destroy the ancient wild boar who stalks the forest and kills. So judging uh, solely on the descriptions, which movie would you rather watch? Would you rather watch the the novel or would you rather watch the, the DVD? Uh, the, the DVD movie, the film, we'll say that, it, it kind of flips it and it makes it more about uh, a white savior family. And the book doesn't really hammer that at all. I mean, it's really more about Fishhawk's story and, and you know him overcoming, understanding um, who he is and what he was and where he came from and uh, wanting to return return to his former life where he was proud and whether you know he had a good life. But uh, let's talk really quick about the film um, Fishhawk. Uh, it's a really, and I'm going to say this with my tongue in cheek, thinly veiled uh, white savior slash vanishing Indian uh, slash coming of age story of a young toe-headed farm boy named Kobe and the rehabilitation of an Osage Indian named Fishhawk um, who turned into the town drunk um, after his wife and young son were carried off by smallpox many years before. And again, there's more to this story, which I'll hammer out um, in the book, but I'll just kind of give you a brief, brief synopsis of the movie, not the book. Um, I assume you can say rehabilitation because um, if your idea of rehab just involves quitting a 10 plus year, uh, you know, hard drinking habit, cold turkey, after your dog um, gets mauled by a bear. Uh, it's not quite a nature film. It's not strong enough to be classified as an adventure movie. It's more of a gentle, restful movie um, whose end effect may actually cause a cozy, deep sleep. And I don't mean that as a bad thing. I mean, it's just this movie is very comforting. It's um, it's like a warm blanket on a cold day. It's like... It's just one of those movies that just kind of makes you go, ha, huh. you know what I mean? It's just, it's a good movie. It's, it's a very charming movie. Uh, Fishhawk is also so shy. And when I say Fishhawk, I have to say the movie because I'm not talking about the man. Um, the movie Fishhawk is, is so shy that, you know, unless you've, like I said, read the, the novel, um, you wouldn't know that the location is supposed to be in the Ozarks. Uh, and it also takes place about the turn of the century. The film, it, it kind of seems a little bit to me afraid to raise its voice. It doesn't, you know, it's afraid to kind of really go to where the book went. And I feel it kind of suffers because of that. It was written by Blanche Hanalis, um, who did Little House on the Prairie. So we already know kind of her, uh, if you watch Little House on the Prairie, it's very safe, I guess this is a nice way of putting it. And it was directed by Donald Shabib, or Shibib, the Canadian director who went on to make his mark directing episodic television shows. Uh, the only villains um, in this movie, we're going to kind of talk about that. Um, the villains in the movie uh, are a renegade brown bear that kills Fishhawk's faithful old dog, Ebo. And uh, the other villain is a wild boar that fatally attacks one of the simpleton town folk. Uh, to his name is Tosak Charlie. Uh, unintentionally hilariously uh, played by Jeffrey Bowes. Uh, Bowes played Mr. Tucker in several episodes of the Goosebumps television show years back, but here he was really gumping it up, um, playing a mentally challenged young kid with Tourette's. And I, when I say that, I mean I am no, by no means knocking anyone with a disability. Um, 
But when you see how it's portrayed in this film in particular, it's really hard to keep the laugh in laughs in because it's so off the mark. I mean, it's so uh, <laughs> it's it's almost satirical the way he he uh, portrays this character. Um, I assume because of that that it kind of gives you the green light to to get a chuckle or two because it's so ridiculous. Uh, his overacting is on full display here. Uh, he's skittish. He he stutters. He has like this childlike wonder. He has the chili bowl haircut. Uh, he's got the super duper baggy clothes. It, it I mean honestly, it doesn't come across as a person at all with with disabilities, uh, which I know is kind of what they were gunning for. It really kind of plays more like a dope headed man child. Uh, unaware of their own of his own stupidity, uh, it kind of reminds me of anti-maskers, eh? Ah, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Uh, but wear your mask. Most of the humans in the movie um, are very patient. They're infinitely patient and understanding. None more so than Fishhawk himself. He tolerates the child. He respects the animals, and he he holds nature in high esteem. And he longs to return to his native Osage culture and people. Fishhawk is quote-unquote saved from alcoholism here. Uh, During one of his hangovers, uh, his dog is killed by the bear. Uh, Fishhawk feels such remorse and responsibility over the loss that he decides then and there to go on the wagon. And he clears the neighborhood of bears and boars and in the process... He really provides young Corby with a perfect role model because Lord knows uh, his paw, uh, Doot, Doot Boggs, um, is a goofy, sangin', jug-sucking, henpecked hillbilly farmer. Fishhawk actually may be the very first movie made about an Indian with a guilt complex. He, he takes Corby, I think it's, he saves Corby, takes Corby under his wing to save him from his own fate, uh, or of his own kind, I think. Um, the acting is is pretty solid, to be fair, um, with the exception of Tosak Charlie. But really, it's Samson's movie. Um, it, it's his movie. He's the standout here, and I'm not just saying that because he's my favorite native actor. His performance as Fishhawk, it's about as real and honest and as heartwarming as it gets. He really brings the character alive in such a way um, that you'll find yourself rooting for him. You're going to be advising him. You're going to be sympathizing with him. I mean, he is a delight on screen. Um, The others, to me, feel a little bit more like caricatures. Um, Perhaps the guiltiest um, is Chris Wiggins, who played another town drunk slash moonshiner, Marcus Boggs. Uh, Chris Wiggins uh, most famously went on to portray Cornelius, uh, the voice of Cornelius in the Babar the Elephant television series. And then horror fans might know him as antique shop owner Jack Marshak in the old Friday the 13th television show. But in Fishhawk, he goes full gum as the toothless, prodding comedic relief. He's so deep in character, you can barely make out what he says through his drunken, slurred speech. And um, after several watches of this film uh, viewings, I am fully convinced that he is probably soused in his scenes. He's got to be a method actor because this guy sounds like Boomauer from King of the Hill. You cannot understand him. Uh, but there's another cast member here that goes uncredited, and that's Whiskey. 
there is so much drinking um, in this movie or talking about drinking um, that it deserves at the very least a special appearance by credit. The very, I mean, the very first thing we see in the movie, um, which you heard at the beginning, is intoxicated fish hawk whooping and hollering and wandering around the farm uh, looking for drinking partners. And then shortly after that, there's a scene in front of a hotel. There's men drinking in a social setting. We meet town moonshiner um, who's constantly drinking. The innocent Tosak Charlie, he relies on the empty whiskey bottles for his survival. Dute, he gets drunk at least twice in this movie, and even uh, Fishhawk's best friend Marshall Furman gets stewed in the film. Marcus Boggs, like we said uh, earlier, uh, like I said, uh, he's the town moonshiner, and he's also the father of Dute, and his sole existence is alcohol. I mean, without it, it's his whole identity, it's his way of life, it's his means of survival. Um, there's not a single scene in this movie that does not involve him pulling drinks um, or being drunk. And I don't have any problems with that other than this. The only time that drinking is addressed in this movie is when it comes to Fishhawk, who is coincidentally the lone native character. I mean, clearly, he is not the only person in this movie who relies heavily on the effects of alcohol. But it's always Fishhawk. He's always the target of scrutiny or disparaging remarks. Everybody's got something to say about his drinking. Um, the only person who really even cares about, you know, why, asks him why, is Tosak. Um, and we learn, you know, from the movie that he just, you know, he's like, well... Uh, I've started drinking when they shot my paw. But in the novel, you learn a lot more about his former life. Uh, shooting his paw involved um, that happening when he was eight years old. Um, soldiers had come into the camp uh, claiming that one of the natives had killed a soldier. And his father, Fishhawk's father, knew that it was true because the day before the soldiers came, uh, one of the natives lit out for the woods <laughs> And his father, uh, being a trustworthy man, offered to stand in, uh, at least until the other man showed up for trial. But the problem was, is the other man never showed up. And it was um, hypothesized that um, he was either shot or, or maybe he got uh, uh, killed by a bear or something. But either way, the man never showed up. So Fishhawk and his father gave themselves up um, in place of the man. And the story goes that the town folk were really lathered up because the soldier had a wife and five kids and they wanted to string him up. They wanted blood. So they pulled Fishhawk and his dad out of jail and shot him right there in the streets in cold blood. And it was decided also at that time that Fishhawk would go to live with a man by the name of Sergeant Parsons. Um, Sergeant Parsons is affectionately referred to as Heavy Eyebrows um, by Fishhawk. But Heavy Eyebrows um, had other children, um, and the Fishhawk was forced to attend schools with them. Um, at the school, they stripped him of his traditional clothing. They, they, they made him wear clothes of the white man. And I think it was pretty, pretty keen that they, he was really the thing he was pissed off most about was they made him wear shoes, like uh, the white man's shoes. <laughs> he said he hated that. Um, his hair was the only thing that he was allowed to keep. 
um, but he had to keep it the same length um, the day that, from the day they adopted him. He wasn't allowed to grow it, but he didn't have to cut it either. But he had to keep it that same length. Um, Fishhawk said his father told him before he died that he needed to go stay with heavy eyebrows uh, because it was his destiny to learn the language, the tools, and the white man ways. And he was told that um, when he learned everything that he could about the white man, he needed to go back to the Osage and share with them what they learned, what he learned, so that they could survive, they could continue to survive on their own. And when he's finally old enough to return to his people, um, you know, he decides when he's about 18 years old that he wants to go back, uh, he finds out that they're gone. And he had heard that they had been, you know, moved to Oklahoma. So he starts walking towards Oklahoma. And in the book, it says he stopped when the lush woods turned to flat, dry prairie. Um, he said then that that's not the land of my people. Um, there wasn't anything uh, in Oklahoma but rolling prairie and stinking, muddy rivers, which is not too far from the truth. So uh, he turned around and he returned to the to the Ozarks, to the lush forest and cool silence where the deer hid, the deer hid, and did what he knew best: uh, work with animals. Um, his people were gone; he was left alone. He could read and write; he could think in terms of measurements. And so it was then that he kind of began working for people in the town of Bent's Ford. Uh, where he where the story takes place uh, he began then doctoring animals in town um, he began tracking you know uh, game for, for the for the town folk he could track wild turkeys and and um, he got married he, he married a runaway ponca he had children and he was at one time kind of a revered member of the community but over time, it seemed that, you know, people forgot about all of that. Um, his wife and, and children were, were, were dead, and they only saw him for what he, what he is now and not what he was. And they just assumed that he's another Indian with a drinking problem. And that really leads me to the first trope um, or negative stereotype in this film about uh, native peoples, and that is the drunken Indian. But where did the idea come from? And that's kind of what I'm here to explore. Uh, you know, how did you know Indians get that stereotype? You know, how, how did that come to be? Well, Europeans um, are the very first ones, surprisingly, haha, uh, are the ones who introduced alcohol to Native Americans to begin with. And it was used as an instrument of trade and diplomacy. And uh, by the time that the Great Plains were being settled by Europeans, uh, almost all uh, negotiations, uh, treaty negotiations, um, in, you know, included subtle, subtle uses of alcohol. And alcohol... Uh, at some point became almost a bargaining chip. Uh, it's well known though that, you know, Native Americans were no uh, strangers to conscious alternating practices. Uh, you know, they were using plants such as uh, deutera and, and peyote and, and tobacco uh, for ceremonial purposes, um, kind of used in questing for visions and spiritual knowledge. Uh, there's a addiction specialist named Don Coyas. Um, and he is a, uh, like I said, he's a recovery specialist known for designing culturally appropriate treatment programs for Native Americans. And he's also the founder and president of White Bison Incorporated. 
and he noted that some southwestern tribes not only used psychoactive plants ceremonially, but also ritualist, ritualistically. Um, they used alcohol, but it was made from fermented plants, and that was long before uh, European contact. Some have observed that native forms of alcohol were weak compared to the European distilled spirits, and they further point out that the white settlers and military personnel on the frontiers were notorious for their extreme drinking and behavior. And Indians would have learned and emulated that extreme social drinking of, uh, of whites. And they had little time to develop their own rules and protocols uh, for what was socially acceptable. So they're basically, uh, you know, Im imitating what they were seeing uh, on the plains through the soldiers and through uh, military personnel. They didn't know any better because that was the example that was being set by, by them. And, uh, you know, because Indians were commonly viewed as inferior to begin with, uh, anti uh, Indian antisocial drunken behavior was really demonized. And as John Frank, Roland Moore, and Genevieve Ames suggest, uh, historical written accounts about Indian drinking must be seen in this light. Uh, abstinence by entire tribal groups was not uncommon. Tribal and colonial authorities attempted bans on alcohol trade in Indian territories, which were largely ineffective in groups that did drink. Also ineffective was legislation passed by Congress outlawing the sale of alcohol to Indians a law first passed by Congress in 1832 and not repealed until 1953. 1953, 67 years ago, it was illegal for you to sell alcohol to a Native American. Since then, there have been many studies on uh, American Indian drinking behavior, and those didn't begin surfacing until the second half of the 20th century. So conventional wisdom held that Native contact with alcohol led to instant personal and cultural devastation. But a landmark study in 1969 by McAndrews and Edgerton and subsequent studies began challenging those beliefs. In a 1971 study, uh, anthropologist Nancy Ostridge uh, Laurie hypothesized that drinking at some point became a way for Indians to validate and assert their Indianness in the face of negative stereotypes, such as the disappearing native. Laurie argued that Indian drinking was the world's longest ongoing protest demonstration. Similarly, Frank, Moore, and Ames argued that the influence of alcohol resulted in a culture of drinking in Indian country, characterized as group-oriented and uncontrolled, among other things. These studies frequently emphasize the socio-history historical roles that alcohol has played in Indian drinking. Understanding Indian alcohol use in the context of colonial history works to deconstruct the stereotype that stigmatized Indians as predisposed to alcohol compared to other populations. The myth about Native American predisposition to alcohol is accompanied by numerous and other related misconceptions about Native Americans and alcohol, as the work of Philip A. May has shown. Not only do the misconceptions spring from bigoted historical tropes, they also, as may suggest, stem from flawed research and misconstrued results. The most controversial is the biological determinist position that alcoholism is genetic. May argues that this is based solely on one study 
that reported that Indians metabolize alcohol more slowly than non-Indians, a study that was later criticized and highly flawed. The whole notion that Native Americans have been predisposed to alcohol uh, is false, especially the whole uh, we metabolize alcohol differently. You know, that has more to do with just uh, individual traits than it does uh, ethnic traits. Uh, you know, Indians probably turn to drinking just the, the, for the same reasons that anybody would turn to drinking. I think it has more to do with your socioeconomic status than anything else. I mean, if you don't have anything or you don't feel like you have anything or there's you don't have a good job or you don't have, you know, family support, uh, you feel alone, uh, things like that, of course people are going to turn to alcohol, whether it's or, or worse. So it doesn't really matter whether you're you're white or black or Native American or, or Hispanic. Uh, you know, everybody has these issues, and it's not just an Indian issue. I think that we sort of get uh, singled out a little bit just because of the way it's been betrayed, uh, whether it's on screen or whether it's on uh, uh, in, in literature, you know. Uh, to me, like, that's where... The whole trope comes from, you know, my personal experience, I've known just as many white people with alcohol problems uh, or addiction problems than I have Native Americans. So uh, in 1994, there was another study on American Indian alcohol use, and it refutes the idea of genetic inheritance. Uh, and there's no research that has conclusively confirmed the theory. It is true that research has exposed deeply troubling statistics regarding alcohol use in Indian country, um, but as May wrote, the common myths and misunderstandings stem from gross oversimplifications. Researchers do not seek to understand things like uh, you know, disproportionately high rates of alcohol-related deaths among American Indian population. There's an off-sited study uh, by the Indian Health Service in the mid-80s, for instance, determined that on average that Indians die more frequently of alcohol-related causes than non-Indians. Indian deaths in alcohol-related car and other accidents were found to be three to four times higher than non-natives. Indian suicide was found to be one and a half to two times higher, and Indian deaths due to homicide were found to be roughly two times higher. And Indian deaths due to alcoholism were found to be five and a half to seven and a half times higher. But the realities can be explained, uh, May says, in three ways. First, the differences can be accounted for by demographic, social, and political differences experienced by Native Americans. Demographically, the American Indian population is relatively young. In 1988, the medium age was 32.3. The younger populations overall tend to have much higher rates of alcohol-related deaths. Sociopolitical considerations, such as low socioeconomic status, also exacerbate alcohol-related problems. Second, American Indian drinking styles tend to be more flamboyant, characterized by abusive drinking, such as binge drinking, and high blood alcohol levels. Third, the mixing of alcohol impairment with risky behaviors and risky environments further contributes to higher morality rates. Most Indian people still live in rural western states where higher death rates can also be expected just due to higher risk environments, greater distance from care facilities, and a lack of availability of services. So they live out in the middle of nowhere. If you're having problems, um, 
who do you go to? There's, there's no services for you. There's no treatment programs uh, there, that are affordable. Uh, where do you go for help? Well, I think all of those things need to be taken into consideration when discussing Native Americans and drinking. And I definitely think that there has to be a distinction made between um, alcohol abuse and alcoholism and just social drinking as well. So in closing, you know, the myth about American Indian predisposition to alcoholism is as is false as saying that white people are naturally predisposed to alcoholism. To even suggest that Indians are, you know, simply more prone to alcohol abuse than non-natives implicitly makes assumptions about the superiority of a dominant white society and thus the inferiority of native peoples. It ignores a complex array of variables um, that must be considered in assessing alcohol abuse in Indian country. Now, I'm not going to sit here and pretend that it's not an issue or it's not a problem within our tribes, but I feel that we lack the properly needed behavioral health facilities to tackle these problems. And we have way too many of our own sisters and brothers out there that are hurting, struggling, and feeling alone. And alcohol may be their only escape. Um, so if you or anyone you know uh, is struggling with addiction, please call uh, 1-877-871-1495 or 1-800-662-4357 for help. Uh, you know, we're pulling for you. We're, 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 we may not know your name. We may not know your struggle, but you're not alone. And there's people out there that love you and that want to see good things for you. So please get help. And with that brings us to the end of part one, uh, Fishhawk. I know we didn't really get to talk a whole lot about the movie, but um, I'm going to be doing that here uh, the next couple of weeks or so. Hoping to bring that film review to you before Thanksgiving. And then I also have the uh, Will Sampson segment that I'll be doing as well. And I'm really looking forward to that. Uh, full disclosure, this is one of the reasons why I started this podcast was so that I could talk about Will Sampson, uh, who is not only a uh, personal hero of mine, but also uh, my favorite native actor. Uh, so we're bringing that to you too. So in the meantime, I appreciate you uh, uh, listening. Don't forget to uh, like us on Facebook, uh, follow us on Instagram, and uh, write, rate and review us on iTunes. Uh, make sure you tell your friends if you like kind of what you're hearing. And let me know what you think about this, this format, uh, the, the splitting it up, if this works for you or if it doesn't work for you. But uh, I'm always interested in hearing uh, what the listeners have to say. So uh, hopefully I will see you again in a couple of weeks with the film review of Fishhawk. Maro. Which